Just call it Q. That's all you'll have time to say before it tears you apart. Q is coming. Hello. Uh, you'll just have time to scream before it tears you apart. That's the uh, tagline for the film that we're discussing today, which is Larry Cohen's Q, also known as The Winged Serpent also known as Q, the Winged Serpent, from 1982. Um, Shall we have a round of introductions? Would you like to introduce yourselves, our commentators? Uh, AD, would you like to go first? Uh, Yeah, my name's... uh, I'm Adrian Mills, um, um, and for my sins, I sat through Q, the Winged Serpent, yesterday. (laughs) Was it your first time? No, it wasn't. Uh, It was my first time in, must have been about 35 years, though. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that in a second or two. Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, well, I'm Peter True, um, lecturer of varying degrees, um, and I too watched Hugh the Winged Serpent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a confession. It's like Anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> film, film watchers Anonymous. Um, uh, this lecture is lecture at varying degrees. Makes you sound your lecture at varying degrees, not on varying yes. uh, I'm Paul Lewis. I, I'm, I have many heads. I'm right. I'm uh, photographer, lecturer as well uh, for, for my sins. Um, uh, in terms of, does anybody want to provide a synopsis for Q or shall I do it? Oh, uh, well, I could lead probably... them to the egg, I think was yours, AD. Lead them, lead them. It's. Um... <laughs> Do we want to do one each? Mine, mine would be, um, I don't know, Az- Aztec dragon terrorises New York while David Carradine looks on, bemused. <laughs> I like that. That's about it. <laughs> I, I'd, I would watch that film. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Peter, would you, do, you want, do you want to sort of offer a synopsis? Um, I, what could I possibly add to that? <laughs> Uh, well, mine would be, uh, of course, we've got Quinn, played by Michael Moriarty, a, a fa- failed jazz musician, I think we should say. Uh, Mor- Moriarty himself was not a failed jazz musician. He's quite an accomplished jazz musician. Mm. And I think that's possibly one of the one of the issues that I have with the film is that he's so good <laughs> musically uh, that uh, the fact that, that guy doesn't give him the gig at the start of the movie in the, um, in the bar it boggles my mind. But anyway... Quinn, failed jazz musician, fallen upon a life of crime, uh, becomes the wheel man for a a diamond heist. And uh, in the getaway, he he leads them to the egg. (laughs) He climbs atop the Chrysler building and finds the nest of a a giant winged serpent, an Aztec god, Quetzalcoatl, Q for short, uh, which has been sort of terrorising the population. In the opening sequence, we see it ripping the head off a... uh, window cleaner don't we and mm-hmm. the guy that played the window cleaner was actually a window cleaner apparently this is Larry Cohen's approach to casting um let's just let's get a window cleaner to play the window cleaner and um <laughs> alongside that we've got a plot of uh, Shepard the uh, detective played by David Carradine who plays David Carradine playing a detective um and uh he's investigating a series of ritualistic murders that appear to have been committed by 
somebody hoping to satiate, would we say, conjure up, satisfy this uh, winged Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. Um, and I, th- I think that's a, a fair summary, isn't it? I think. See, I want to watch that film. <laughs> I think congratulations for the uh, the only times that the the actual name of the serpent will be mentioned throughout the whole thing because I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Well, the problem with my notes is that I've I've called Quinn Q for shorthand and then Q's Q, so <laughs> I've got no. too confused. But I think that's that's part. Well, come on to that in terms of the interpretation later. That is intentional. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that's intentional. But anyway, we'll come on to that a bit later. Um, so do you want to talk about your first encounters with the film, Peter? Would you like to go first? Um, OK. Uh, well, well, uh, I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll read this from, from my notes. It's all a bit uh, waffly and, um, you know, I get carried away. But um, I will be the judge of that. I think. Well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Q Winged Serpent was one of those films um, which I have a, a vague recollection from uh, from childhood. You know, um, like uh, Douglas Trumbull's Silent Running, uh, one of those films that was watched maybe on a Sunday afternoon at my nan's house, or maybe shown to me by my dad when I was probably too young to watch it, like uh, Aliens or uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Can um, one be too young to watch such films? I, well, the the the, um, the sleepless nights possibly hint. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I one of those things I, I remember a, a windy a windy man-made precipice I've written here with a, a city backdrop and a sense of foreboding danger off screen, um, and it was just one of those uh, vague memories of a film and uh, what um, in in my my. Uh, hobby of, of reading leafing through the uh, film guides um i i came across a, a description of of the film of uh of uh, one of the characters hiding in the tower of the chrysler building discovers a large hole in the dome of a structure containing a huge nest with an equally large egg and several partially devoured human corpses i thought oh that's that's that film that's that film i watched years and years ago um so uh, i went out uh, re rewatched it, revisited, and um, the the rest the rest is history. <laughs> Thank you, Ad. Would you like to offer your first encounters with I, you? Um, I, I have no, I don't know. I I know I've seen this um, in the eighties. <laughs> this is um, I had a brother uh, several years older than me, so I think about twelve, thirteen years older than me, uh, and we would have watched this as part of our devouring of anything on video that was vaguely horrific fantastical or whatever so at at some point it's mixed in with conan alien the barbarians all those kind of things that came out in the 80s and the mid 80s on vhs that was just you know you just get them from i think it was flicks down on uh, cromwell road um if anyone knows oh, who's me, sort of thing. The old, way uh, down video from, shop. Yeah. 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 So that I think that, had the uh, windows that looked like they were barricaded, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. If I remember yeah. rightly, yeah. yeah. And so we used to get all our, most of our videos <laughs> from there. So it, it would have been watched in that period uh, at some point. But I, I do remember that you know when you said, "Oh, well, we'll do Q," that I did have a, a sort of an almost 
Pavlovian response of, oh, <laughs> that's not a good film. And, and, I know, and, I, and I know I hadn't watched it since my, my childhood sort of thing. So even if I'm thinking when I'm a kid, I'm about, you know, 12, 13 year old thinking this isn't a good film, but it's still stuck in my head like 30 odd years later. Um, I'm not in for a treat. And I was right. So uh, <laughs> there you go. That's, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's watched sometime in the 80s and, and I never revisited it until yesterday. So um, thanks for that, Paul. Well, you're welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> so I, I think um, I think my we had the Hakushin. It was like I can't pronounce it. Preset videotape Hakushin, wasn't it? I think kicking about the house at some point, which is probably the one that you saw, Aidy, because I don't know that it had a VHS release. I after. did. I, 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 well, I don't know. I, I just remember it being for rental. Um, yeah. I just I do remember because I remember the uh, the cover that sort of almost Boris Vallejo type uh, painting. Yeah. So I, de- uh, I definitely remember it being in the shops and when we rented it, because de- there's no other way I would have ever watched it. No, I, I think it might have been one of those videotapes that after the uh, video recordings act, that slapped an 18 stick. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I probably, yeah. did that from time to time. The first time I vividly remember watching Q was uh, when it was shown on Movidrome, which had been 91 and 92. Um, and that was about well that, well, that would be 10 years approximately after it had come out and um, I think I'd seen it before but the, this is the first time it, it's seared into my memory uh, on a double bill with um, Lewis Teague's Alligator made in 1980, written by John Sayles which was kind of the monster movie of that era, I, don't, I guess you've probably both seen Alligator, but yeah. the monster movie of that era that was uh, it was sort of held up as a uh, because it was written by John Sayles, who went on to become an indie filmmaker. It was held up as a uh, in quite high regard, wasn't it? As uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the script for that picture based on the urban myth of um, you know <laughs> kids in New York flushing That's baby true. alligators yeah. down the toilets. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I think I haven't seen Alligator for a number of years, but I think both Q and Alligators end in a similar way, don't they? With an egg. Or... Yeah. Doesn't another do allig- doesn't, doesn't another alligator get flushed? I think so, yeah, yeah. The end of alligator, if I remember rightly, or yeah. might be an egg, like you said. It might be, oh, she, oh, she laid an egg in the, I think, <laughs> the egg. It's, it's one of the other. Yeah, I mean, you know, Cohen says about uh, Q that uh, he saw, Dean Devlin saw the film and stole the idea for Godzilla, the 90s. Yeah. You know, the final scene with the egg. Yeah. And I think, well, that could have come from Alligator, really, because my, in my memory, Alligator ends in a similar way. Yeah, well, yeah. On on my DVD um, extra features, there was a quote of Cohen um, saying that uh, I like that they spent 140 million dollars to steal from a movie that I made for a million two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've got to admire, I think the the chutzpah, I think of uh, of Cohen, haven't you? I think when he says stuff like that. Mm, but yeah. um, but I remember the, that that movie drone double bill with alligator Alex Cox. Talked about Q, um, gave an introduction as he did of all the films on Movie Drome, mm. and I'm sure uh, I would imagine you both watched Movie Drome. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I, I sort of watched it religiously throughout the 90s. Um, and he described Q as a combination of slasher movie and King Kong, which is sort of quite on the nose in some ways. I think it's a bit more like a, a combination, for my for my money, a bit more like a combination of Prince of the City and you know that Sydney Lumet picture. And King Kong, I think. But yeah, I think yeah. I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've got um, my notes here. Uh, uh, part X Files episodes, part King Kong, um, part Detective movie. So. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think these are some of the things we might come on to later about the production, um, you know, in terms of uh, Cohen's intentions with it. Uh, Cox also says in that introduction that Cohen, Cohen has very bad taste, but he knows how to keep a story moving. And I think that, you know, regardless of sort of <laughs> polarised responses to it, I think, I think that sense of Cohen keeping the stories going is something that he learned, particularly in his writing for TV. I mean, you know, if you look at his credits uh, prior to his uh, debut as a director, which was Bone, which I think is an amazing film, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, so much of his writing was for TV shows, Branded, um, you know, that Chuck Connors mm-hmm. Western show. Um, the Invaders, that was another another oh. favourite of mine, as a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a crooked little fingers. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and and even after he became a, a director, he sort of wrote quite a lot of TV. Um, and I think that 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 economy of storytelling is is quite evident. Um, and the other thing that Cox says about Q is that that Cohen's got a nice eye for detail, a perverse sense of humour. And I think I sort of responded to that mm-hmm. as a as a young person watching the film. Um, and I still do. I think <laughs> there's probably a point in my twenties and my thirties where I thought I'm a bit above that. But <laughs> when I'm getting to my forties, you know, that perverse sense of humour I find quite amusing. And and that opening sequence with the window clean, it was it was confirmed for me that perverse perverse sense of humour. Confirmed for me when um, the uh, creature bites that guy's head off and it, and, it, and they describe it as a cantaloupe, don't they? And, and um, uh, is it she- Shepherd Quips? Does the other cop maybe his head just got loose and fell off? And mm-hmm. you know, it's those little off offhand moments I think that that are so obviously improvised that I like about Cohen's work. And what what I liked about it as well at the time is that it's as much a black comedy as a, as a horror film or monster movie. It's, it's tongues in its cheek, I think. And and you know this is true of many of Cohen's films. And and. And it sort of takes this milieu of contemporary crime as well, which which sort of appeals to me in some ways. Um, you know, the, the sort of the post-French connection, Sidney Lumet type crime picture era. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and, and I, I revisited it since. Uh, you know, the, the the Anchor Bay DVD. I don't know if that's the one you've got, Peter, that you mentioned earlier. It um, might be. And I, I watched it for my sins. I watched it, me watched it last week. And uh, <laughs> AD will probably sacrifice me to some aspect, God, for doing this. <laughs> but I got the projector out and I watched it 100 inches <laughs> on the big screen. And it's actually, uh, <laughs> it's, but it's really nicely photographed, I think, in, mm. in, you know, in many ways. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the print's not in great shape. You know, even even in high def, um, uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, the, the contrasts all over the place, and I assume I don't know, it might not be from the negative. I don't get too much into the technical details about it, but uh, but um, the photography was by uh, Fred Murphy, um, who I think worked um, on a lot of um, Cohen's pictures, and most of them are quite well shot in one way, shape, or other. Um, he worked on, um, yeah, did a lot of Hollywood films in the 90s. Stare of Echoes, he photographed Stare of Echoes, which I, I really like, actually. I, I need to rewatch that. The Kevin Bacon one. Yeah, the Richard Matheson adaptation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good. I mean, I love the book. That's one of my favourite sort of Richard Matheson novels, but um, I think the film's excellent. And, I thought uh, the, um, just the, the, the cinematography, just to sort of, sort of say, I, when watching it, sort of thing, a lot of it felt almost. Um, like some of it is quite documentary style, sort of cinema, cinema verite. It is, yeah, um, yeah. Especially you know the shots of New York at the time, like just random shots of just homeless people sleeping in doorways and yeah, uh, I mean, and, and, and things like that. And when he's when he loses the the briefcase, 
um, and and the way people are reacting and the way it's shot, it, it, there was a certain sense of they've clearly just gone out, and yeah, just, and just filmed. And I thought that was that was quite. That's the one thing I actually took away from it, going, that's yeah, that's all right. That's yeah, quite, that's well done. I think the thing about Cohen is that 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 you can sort of admire, even if you don't like the films, you can sort of admire his, like I said, his chutzpah, uh, this this sort of guerrilla approach to filmmaking, and and and. and I'll talk about this in the production, but this this kind of came off. Uh, Q came off the back of his uh, dislike of working in a studio way with storyboards and you know a clear shooting schedule and so on and so forth. And with Q, he went in the completely opposite direction because he it 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 knocked heads with um, the producers of uh, either Jory, which he would eventually was fired off, and he he, he assembled Q. Uh, as a as a project, um, you know, to sort of exercise that experience out out of his system, and uh, you can see that that guerrilla style uh, approach to filmmaking, and and uh, you know, I think that that characterizes Cohen's work. And regardless, mm. of, sometimes the the, the 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 finished output, uh, what I what I find rewarding in Cohen is firstly this sense of black humor, I think, but also secondly is a commitment to sort of improv and, 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 and sort of guerrilla uh, filming, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm just looking at, um, you know, uh, um, Fred Murphy's other credits as a cinema, cinematographer. Another picture he shot, which I really like, is uh, Bestseller. And I didn't realise he'd, he'd photographed Bestseller. You know, I, I don't know if you remember that with uh, James Watson, Brian Dennehy. Brian Dennehy, yes. yeah. Yeah, I yeah. really like that. Um, and I, that's another film that I'm sort of looking at. I need to rewatch that, maybe that's... over Christmas. That's just a, it's an 80s thriller, isn't it? It is, yeah, it's yeah, 80, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brian, but it's, it's, sorry, AD. No, go on, go on, sorry. No. It, I, I was just saying, it's, it's got such good performances, I think, in it, uh, mm. Woods and Dennehy. Um, I, remember, I remember reading, um, I don't know if it was God Told Me To or, or one of his other films where um, there was uh, some kind of police parade or something uh, just happening at the time, so he incorporated that into the script. And, That's God, God Told Me To, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and then uh, you know there was a rainstorm, so he said, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a rainstorm in this in this film?" And just basically shot that, which, which reminded me of um, Edward Edward D. Wood Jr. Or you know, yeah. Well, there is that. I mean, you know, uh, Edward was uh, <laughs> we, we we sort of we chuckle at his films, but in terms of resourcefulness, a bit like Herschel Gordon Lewis, isn't it? You know, uh, there are quite a few of these filmmakers in in the American independent scene that that. That demonstrate that level of resourcefulness. I mean, sometimes the finished product isn't great, but it's it's the sort of the uh, the, uh, the the balls, if you like, that they demonstrate in um, in um, mm. pursuing projects with very limited resources. I think that is is admirable. I think, and and the fact that they can they could at that point get distribution as well. I think is is kind of it's that's something that's changed. I think an mm. awful lot. Um, there was still. You know, horrendous filmmakers uh, finding self-distributing their own work, like Bill Zibub, who I was reading an interview with yesterday. Um, but uh, the few and far between, I think, you know, because the channels of distribution are so uh, narrowed, especially in the the market, the streaming market. Mm. Um, I think. But anyway, that's, that's sorry, Peter. Well, I was just going to say the elements of you know in, in um, Easy Rider, wasn't there, where they they took off, took out, you know, city film camera and and did the <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, the the Mardi Gras sequence. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, just went and shot that um, ad hoc guerrilla style, no permits, um, you know, and, and improved around it. I mean, the other filmmaker, of course, that <clears throat> one of my favourite filmmakers is uh, Casavetes, John Casavetes, who used his own money to bankroll uh, his productions and and you know just improv, I mean faces, 
uh, is an incredible film, but it's entirely mm -hmm. improvised around the, obviously the barest of of, of outlines, but uh, but you know just get a camera and, and, and roll with it. And the, the the sad thing I think today is that um, it's, 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 there's so much potential for that in the digital age because you can just shoot, shoot, shoot. Mm, <laughs> but um, pe people people don't seem to do that because. Of course, that's not the thing. That's not the type of filmmaking that there's a market for, at least a market for distribution. I think there's the audience is probably still there, uh, but you know, in, in, back in the days of uh, when Casavetes made Faces, obviously you had to buy reels and reels of 16 mil black and white film, which is what he shot it on, and 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 you know that that was an expensive process to to buy that film, then then develop it and then print it and so on and so forth. Whereas in the digital age today, there's uh, maybe other indeed the one I was sort of struck by um, when you sort of talking about that and and a sort of obviously guy was working on it was would be uh, Ferreira Abel Ferreira oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, you know you know his early stuff the Driller Killer and things like that sort yeah. of thing which are you know New York and filmed in that kind of you know guerrilla style yeah Driller Killer uh, especially Miss uh, Forty Five yeah exactly sort of thing it has it has that same kind of I mean Cohen's work is a bit more light hearted. Yeah, um, yeah, not quite as dark sort of thing, but there's that similar kind of sort of um, sensibility of we're going to make something no matter what. Yeah, well, for, I mean, for ours works sort of pretty much linked by uh, Catholicism, isn't it? I mean, you yeah, know, I, I think you see that in all in Driller Killer, you see that in Miss Forty Five. I mean, uh, the funeral, which is possibly one of my favorite. If I had to draw up a list of ten favorite films, the, the funeral would be up there. Um, I think that's an incredible film. Um, and that's another one that's hit me at, at different levels at different stages of my life, I think. But uh, but Farah's work's linked by Catholicism. But that that's kind of a theme, faith, if you like, is a theme in in Q as well, isn't it? Not, uh, and in some of other Cohen's other work, God God told me to. You mentioned Peter. Mm, well. Yeah. I think that notion of faith is is sort of central to that. Um, I don't know about Cohen's other films, but but certainly in Q, you've got this juxtaposition of the the old old faith and new faith. But I've I've got something about that that you know for for um, a conversation that we'll have later, I think, in terms of interpretation. So I don't want to sort of um, you know uh, uh, fire off about that too early. But uh, but yeah, I think I think that concept of faith is 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 uh, sort of links Q and Ferrara's work. Uh, both similar guerrilla style, and uh, I mean, again, Jula Kill is another film. I've got a lot of time for Jula Kill. It's not possibly not the greatest film ever, but uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff going on in Q as well. But we'll come on to that. Um, so, um, in terms of contemporary responses, I don't know if you've any, any of you have dug up anything about contemporary responses. Um, well, I don't know how contemporary 2002 is, but... Um, It'll do. <laughs> <laughs> again, returning to the, the um, those uh, tomes of uh, the film guides, Halliwell's um, describes it as a, a quirky, above-average horror film with flashes of brightness. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I should have dug out my... Um, you know the P Phil Hardy, not Peter Hardy, Phil Hardy, Oran Film Encyclopedia, the horror edition. I'm, I'm sure you've seen that a great big volume that that everybody that was a horror fan sort of coveted in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, with that's got a, an interesting review of uh, of Q in it, but I, I don't know. The wife's put that away somewhere. So I don't know where it is. Um, uh, I mean, what I noted was that. Uh, there was a conversation at Cannes when the film was shown at Cannes. Rex Reed, you know, the critic Rex Reed spoke to Samuel Zedarkov, the producer, and, and Reed said something along the lines of, 
all that dreck <laughs> to, to Markov. All that dreck. And it makes me think of Judge Dredd that way. All that dreck. And right in the middle of it, a great method performance by Michael Moriarty. And I think that that sort of, for me, in some ways, the black comedy speaks to me in Q, but it's Moriarty's performance. Oh, yes. Is it? Uh, and, I mean, I, I love Moriarty. I think he's great in, in, in sort of pretty much... I mean, I was one of those fans of... Um, the first was it the first four seasons of Law and Order that he was in, um, and I watched that religiously back in the early nineties. I don't know if any of you sort of uh, uh, um, uh, remember that, but Moriarty was the district, uh, sorry, assistant district attorney Ben Stone, and he had some great. And there's still lines in that that I quote to students on occasion. You know, the truth will set you free, but it won't always make you happy. You know, and that's a line from Ben Stone. In law and order, but it's Moriarty's delivery that that sort of mm. uh, uh, that fixed that in the memory uh, so rigidly for me. I think. Also, the Time Out review uh, I noticed as well from '82 praised the resourcefulness uh, and Cohen's pacing, which are a couple of things that I think I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and what it said was that Cohen's pacing doesn't really leave space for the audience to question the plotting or the logic. And I think when I watched the film. Uh, projected on the big screen as well. It's kind of when I get the projector out and I sort of sit there, I commit to watching it from beginning to end. Mm. But no, I sort of put coffee breaks or loo breaks, <laughs> you know, or to pause and rewind and, and finish it off later. And you get that, and I think that's a very different experience. You know, if you watch Q at the pictures in, in 82, I think it's a different experience to watching films at home now. Uh, which is kind of you, you sort of you pause and you go off and do something else and go well that doesn't make sense <laughs> at least with a, a picture like you I think you, you know you see it in the cinema you get to the end of it and then um, you know you look oh, that, that 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 quite that 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 wasn't quite logical or that was a bit repetitive and and uh, but that's after you've left the pictures mm. in the meantime you've had quite a, a fun time with you know uh, whoever it is that, that, that you've gone with. Um, unless you're like me and you go to the pictures on your own, which is quite sad, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, 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 did, I did the same sort of thing. I mean, I'd watched it in, not not on a big projector sort of thing, but 40-odd inch screen sort of thing, just on the, in, in the sort of studio room sort of thing. So 5.1 sound. Yeah. Um, I was about, you know, three, my chair's about three feet away from the TV. So much as I can get it sort of thing. And I, and I did commit, I watched it, you know, no stops, no breaks, beginning to end. Um, and yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not sure i'm going to be in the same wheelhouse as you paul but um but you know i i gave it its time i gave it its due you know i thought well you pick the film you know i'm gonna i'm gonna you know give it give it its chance yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and I, I i do i do think i don't know um whether we're going to sort of bring this up sort of thing but i did i did think that there's a there's a sequence in the middle and uh, with those cinemas at Veritavia, as I mentioned, sort of thing, where I think that the whole, the the chase up the Chrysler building and the, the, after the heist, yeah, um, I was I was sat there going, oh come on, hurry up, yeah, um, yeah. It, that I think that's, that's there's a story yeah. about that as well. It, I think really we'll just drag a bit. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't want to. It, we'll talk about it when we talk about the production. But there's a story okay. about this, the, the the whole sort of Chrysler building thing, um, and um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I can see what you mean, certainly. And it's those kind of moments that I think, you know, you, you sort of at the end <laughs> when you've watched the film at the cinema, you walk out and you go, "Well, that that che- that chase at the Christ, that security guard gave up on me quickly." <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course he could have catched it, caught him, sorry, at some point. And, uh... I said to Pete before we came on, one of my notes says he's basically like a a guard from a video game. 
yeah. Um, in the fact he's got his thirty seconds of search time, and then goes, "Oh, nothing here." <laughs> walks off. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it made me chuckle. I was like, oh, "Playing the hitman game." I'm surprised uh, Larry Cohen didn't uh, take credit for uh, the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> If he played it, he probably would have done. Um, I mean, the other thing that I noticed about contemporary responses was that um, there's a funny story. I watched the, um, uh, I revisited the commentary by Larry Cohen, and it's, you know, listening to Cohen with these stories is incredible. But I mean, he opens that commentary with um, the introduction. I'm Larry Cohen, and I don't know what I'm talking about. That's that's the best way I think to start the commentary track for a film ever. but he, he talks about uh, the preview audience and the preview audience, for some reason, and he does sort of rationalise it uh, in a roundabout way in the commentary track, but for some reason the original preview audience thought that the movie that they were going to was the, the new Steven Spielberg film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> and apparently he says that <laughs> they, when, the, when the, the preview audience saw the name Samuel Z. Arkoff, a production by Samuel Z. Arkoff appear on the screen, about 50% of them walked out. At least 50% walk, walked out before the credits were over. <laughs> Which I think is a, a wonderful story. You know, getting mixed that mixed up. Q mixed up with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which, ironically, is the first film that I ever remember seeing at the cinema on the big screen. There you go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It gives me nightmares, that film. It's the Close idea encounters. of scuttling about downstairs because you don't it's see anything. Yeah. <laughs> But the the, the, um, the sort of reviews I sort of saw about Q um, mostly seem to focus around um, it's it, it that it wasn't easily um, definable as, yeah. as one film or another that its um, its complexities were its downfall um, that it was uneasily placed as a simple giant monster romp. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that I think maybe it's hinted at from the start with its opening score, which sort of I've written here, Wales, a winding path between original lost in space camp sci-fi and, <laughs> Hammer, <laughs> <Horror>. <laughs> and then Hammer Horror Big Strings. It's, you know, even the first hint, you're not quite sure what kind of film it is. You're, uh... Yeah, it feels like an expensive score, doesn't it? That actually, when you when you think about it, there's, there's, there's a bit of orchestration in it and uh you know, I don't know if there's a bit of um, sort of uh, uh, sort of synth, synth in it as well. I'm not, I'm not quite, quite entirely certain. But, uh, but it's, yeah, it's Robert Ragland, isn't it, that wrote the score? And, and um, you know, did he Rag- do? Just as a question, I don't, I don't know anything about this guy sort of thing. But did, he, did he do uh, scores for TV shows? <laughs> well, he, he only did one. Uh, no, two. Sorry, there's uh, one, one for Wonder Woman. <laughs> one, one episode of Wonder Woman. One episode of Barnaby Jones. Actually, the three and six episodes of Tarzan in '91. Um, but he did the scores. Uh, interesting. His first score was for The Babysitter, which um, I think I wrote an article about a few years ago. Um, he, he did stuff like Grizzly. Um, you know, um, uh, right. uh, it's, it's uh, but all of his scores, I think, uh, Jaguar Lives that was a Marsh Lambert movie, wasn't it? In the glove, um, 10 to Midnight. Do you remember the um, Charles, Charles Bronson? Yeah, with the the, the uh, Ted Bundy <laughs> uh, film mm-hmm. by Charles Bronson and Assassination. So he did quite a few scores for for those kind of canon era pictures, and 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 you know, these are scores that sort of sound way more expensive than the films probably were. Um, so you know, this is a guy that probably had an economy of of, 
Stunning. Had he, had he actually seen the film when he did the score? Well, did he yeah. know anything? Because I got the impression sort of thing from a lot of it sort of thing that the the score and the what was going on on the screen just didn't match up for me to a, to a lot of degree. It found it felt like and it sounded as well like far too dramatic in places. Yeah, I mean, that might be the case. I, 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 I mean, I, I, to be honest, the process of film scoring in, in different contexts, I'm not completely conversant on. But, yeah. uh, you know, usually the, I think they watch a rough cut and then they write the score based on that. But sometimes, I mean, with a case like uh, of a film like Q that was shot so quickly and so cheaply, it might be the case that he's got a basic outline <laughs> and a flying creature. Because I think some of the, the do, 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 you know, the, the more ethereal stuff is. Um, Quite in line with the sort of flying sequences. It's a bit floaty. Mm, do you know mm. what I mean? And it's some of the other bit uh, motifs that, that don't quite work. I mean, yeah, there was too much. Uh, there was too much of the sort of the, the New York stuff, the stuff on the ground, the stuff with Moriarty. Uh, that to me was like this. This music is so off-putting. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. There was you know, especially the bit in the uh, apartment and stuff. But just I don't know. It, yeah, I feel like I'm very down on this film. I need to change. I, 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 I didn't find it unenjoyable, but I think I enjoyed it for maybe the wrong reasons. Yeah, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if it is because of the because it literally makes no sense when you actually do stop to think about it for any given moment. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, but yeah, yeah. there's lots lots to talk about. Isn't there? This is the thing. So. Uh... Um, was it, um, so yeah, I think the the the, the scoring of it, I think, is is um, maybe uh, um, it's interesting. I think the scores it, it gives it a a, a a it feels it feels like a more expensive score. I think, doesn't it? You know, I think that's. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing silence. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I like I say this somebody that used to play in an orchestra. <laughs> Lead first violin, don't you know? <laughs> Sorry, Pete, you were saying to me. Well, I was saying I like the other musical elements, you know, the um, the other music that was in there. It, it reminded what well, something else reminded me as well of uh, the Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould. Oh yeah, uh, just just the you know the incidental music or the you know the you know the contemporary music for its time, the more jazz elements and stuff. Well, that um, opening, sorry, Peter, to interrupt you, but the opening of the Long Goodbye has got the um, mm. the Long Goodbye. Yeah. And it happens every, but it's it's sung in three or four different ways, isn't it? There's well, a, lots throughout. There's even uh, a doorbell with. Uh, that's with that's an incredible movie. I wrote uh, an article about that a few years back, and uh, mm. Blu-ray was was released, and and uh, it's not my favourite Altman. I will say I like California Split more. I think and maybe McCabe and Mrs Miller, but I think Long Goodbye is, is an amazing film. Sorry, Peter. No, no, that's fine. It just, it just had that similar feel. Um, Variation on on some key motifs. Yeah. yeah, and it may be like like sort of same with Adi that uh, you know maybe uh, uh, Ragland had the had the outline and wrote these motifs and and then they just got worked into the film as and where we need some floaty music for flying flying monsters. We need some on the street music for sort of action scenes. Um, what you said about the apartment scene? Do you mean the apartment scene with um, Moriarty, um, Quinn, and his girlfriend? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, the, that sequence. Yeah. yeah, I seem to remember there was like some quite overbearing music. <clears> that. Yeah, well, that was the first scene that they shot. Actually, not that this has any bearing on the music, but uh, that was where Moriarty and Cohen consolidated the relationship because uh, Moriarty let Cohen, uh, Cohen let Moriarty uh, improvise. 
and Moriarty was the kind of actor that loved improvisation, and uh, Cohen was the kind of em- uh, director that embraced it. Mm. So he let uh, Moriarty improvise much of that scene, apparently, and and and, and that's where Moriarty was quite a. Apparently, it can be sort of quite sort of spiky and standoffish, I think, with other, other directors. But because he was given that freedom by Cowan, he, he sort of formed that relationship. Um, and, and they worked on five five films together after um, Q. Um, and I heard you mention one of them earlier, <laughs> which was, um, was it Island of the Alive, somebody mentioned earlier? Um, oh, yeah, the It's Alive yeah. trilogy, the, 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 the third stuff. one. Which I really like the stuff. I think that's very quite a clever oh, stuff yeah. on consumerism. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that becomes more relevant as the years go on. Um, Island of the Alive, which is uh, bizarre. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to describe that one. Uh, Return to Salem's Lot, which is um, that, again, that's a very polarizing uh, film, isn't it? And um, sorry, sorry, Amy. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know why. Surely the, surely the general <laughs> consensus is that Return to Salem's Lot is awful. I, th- I think there's, there's quite a strong cult following for it, to be honest. Really? With um, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was an episode of Masters of Horror. Um, mm. Do you remember that Mick Garris TV series from yeah, yeah. about 15 years ago? Pick me up. Um, and, and Masters of Horror as a series, I don't know if either of you watched it, it was all over the shop, but but Pick Me Up, uh, I think, was kind of one of the best episodes of the first uh, season of that didn't, show. Didn't Carpenter do one for that as well? And, and... He did too. Um, yeah, he did, yeah. Was, um, the um, pro-life and um, cigarette burns. And that, that was... that was. I, we're getting slightly off topic, but, but cigarette burns I thought was in, an incredible concept, but there was there were things that Carpenter could have stepped back from the supernatural stuff he could have hinted at rather than represented more direct. But anyway, that, that's that's another kettle of fish. Into it. I don't get too much into that. Um, Aidy, did you look at any contemporary responses? Um, I didn't. No, I, I, I wanted to keep. Um, I, I'll be I'll be honest. I, I've been sort of busy with with marketing and everything that's been going on, sort of thing. And I, and I kind of wanted to keep. I, I didn't want to sort of colour anything of my watch of it, so I didn't get around to watching it till last night. So uh, yeah. ap- apologies, I didn't I didn't get to around to anything, sort of more contemporary research for it. Sorry. I think I think we've covered some some major. I think, I think so. Yeah, I think what you guys have said I think covers it. And I, I just chip in with what. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of Cohen's uh, body of work, you know, if we take Cohen as the author of it, which I think is is it's definitely a Larry, Co- Larry Cohen film, isn't it? <laughs> Whether you love it or hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it sits somewhere between, like I say, either Jory, which he started, but he was fired uh, from. And who was he replaced by on either Jory? Um, you remember the Amanda Sante, uh, Mickey Splane adaptation. Um, I'm just checking who, who replaced him as director on that. Um, it was Richard Richard Heffron. To be honest, I don't, I don't know Richard Heffron. I think it was that one of his few credits. Oh, he worked on uh, the Rockford Files and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, a, di- a director sort of associated with TV by and large, I think. Oh, he made Future Future World as well, actually. Oh, <laughs> um, mm. it's you know, well, uh, I was trying to find that the other day because I, I just rewatched uh, Westworld and uh, I'm sure I had Future World on DVD, but I don't know. Your move. That's that's the best Yo <laughs> Move impersonation that I can do, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and some episodes of Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh, but yeah, he replaced. Oh, he, uh, he did. He did do V, the final battle, and North yeah. and South. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, be, be the final battle, actually, yeah, because that was just a three-parter, wasn't it? Yes. Apparently he did all three episodes of that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he replaced uh, Cohen on Hide the Jory. So, you know, this sits somewhere between... Um, I will uh, freely admit the two Cohen films that I've not seen, Full Moon High, uh, which I've not seen. <laughs> uh, that's about... A, a popular high school football player becomes a werewolf after a trip to Romania and struggles to come to terms with his new reality. That's probably why I've not seen it. And <laughs> um, Blind Alley, which I might have seen, actually. I'm not sure uh, at some point. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if any of you... Any of you have, have particular sort of feelings about Cohen's work generally? Um, I'll let, I'll let uh, Peter. <laughs> Love you, Cohen. Well, what do you think? <laughs> well um, no, I haven't really um, encountered anything else. The only thing I've sort of um, in, for the interpretations a bit later is is just sort of referring vaguely to to um, God told me to and the stuff, just in terms of the likelihood that there's some kind of message uh, in Q. Um, yeah. Referring to to the, back to those films, but other than that, um, no, not really. But I, I mean, I assume you've, you've you've seen God Tell Me To and the stuff, haven't you? I mean, I guess both of you have. No, uh, I've seen the stuff. Yeah, I've yeah. Seen God Tell Me To, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, my relationship with Cohen is, <clears throat> I know, <clears throat> funny, is his sort of his eighties straight to video stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, because we, like a theatrical release in the US, didn't it? But it's as, uh, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, you know, ten, I was ten in what nineteen eighty two sort of thing. So you know, the height of the video nasties and whatever you want to call them, you know, and watching stuff on VHS. So <clears throat> things like you, um, it lives, it lives again, uh, it's it's alive three, uh, return to things like Deadly Illusion, um, these kind of things were watched during the eighties, yeah. and I think. <clears throat> I, I think I was. I'm aware of Cohen, um, you know, and for what he did more for the It's Alive series, I think, than than and, and Q more than much else. And I was actually, I didn't, I didn't know he did the stuff until I just looked now, sort of thing. So, um, I'm, I'm, you know, the stuff was one of those, um, you know, that and Street Trash. Oh, street. Uh, um, yeah. I sort of linked them both together because obviously they're both melting. The film's about melting people um, in various things, sort of thing. And, and, and so it was always those, you know, I, I just kind of lumped Cohen into this sort of this group of directors, you know, w- w- that was working in this kind of genre in the 80s. Um, yeah. you know, some, some are better than others. So you, you, you had your, your, your Cavendish, your Cronenbergs, your Cohens, your, you know, those, those kind of people, you, you, you know. That I, maybe maybe Sam Raimi, uh, yeah. you know, sort of thing. So these sort of low budget horror films that were just packing, you know, uh, video shelves, um, and you know, having a twelve, thirteen year old brother who was dead into that sort of thing was the best thing. Yeah. Um, because um, my mum didn't care, and I was just watching all this stuff. You know, so it was great. You know, but I think that's that's my relationship with Cohen. He was just one of that that era <coughs> sort of thing. I yeah, never really yeah. Went any further. Yeah. I mean, I, what about you, Peter? You say you've not. Did you say you've seen God Tell Me Too? No, no. Um, I was just read, reading about it and um, looking this sort of thing. To, to be honest, horror is probably the um, one of that the sort of genres that I least sort of um, have experience with. Really, um, it's not something. Uh, I was surprised uh, with his involvement uh, with uh, Phone Booth. Oh uh, yes, yeah, he wrote the script for Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, if you look back at his, his early career, 
Um, his first three films were crime pictures, really. I mean, Dial uh, Bone or Dial Rat, as it's sometimes called. Uh, uh, you know, that's a uh, that was his directorial debut. Like I say, prior to that, he'd, he'd written a lot for TV shows. Um, Bone's a really interesting film, I think. It's uh, it's about a, a, a sort of a, a criminal a, a played by Yafet Kato breaks into a Beverly Hills, Hills home of a sort of a, this 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 couple that are having some sort of marital breakup. Um, and uh, it's it's quite about you know bearing in mind that it comes around sort of that 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 fag end of the civil rights era is it, it it's quite sort of bold in the way that it confronts sort of racial tensions in American society and sort of wealth and poverty and and the Afro gives a, an incredible performance but it's also um, it's a great performance by um, Andrew Duggan and Joyce Van Patten as the as the couple as well. Um, and you know, if you've not seen that, if you think of Cohen as a horror film director, you know it's it's worth checking out. It's it's mm. it's very different to that. And the other two films that he made after that were that era of black exploitation films that came after Gordon Park Shaft, and you know, um, films with a black cast made by sort of Caucasian filmmakers. Um, um, but he made Black Caesar, which you might have seen and not realised it's a Cohen film with Fred the Hammer Williamson and Hell Up in Harlem, which is a pretty good that's um an adapt is that an adaptation of a Chester Himes book I think it might be but uh uh you know but both of those um again are, are crime pictures and uh you know 74 it's alive and then after it's alive God told me to private, private life private files of J Edgar Hoover 77 again which is another crime picture but then back to it's like it, it lives again. It's alive too. Full Moon High, you know, comedy werewolf hijinks, which is the one I've, I've not seen. Q, special effects, <clears throat> um, which that's a pretty good film. Um, that's not. I, I wouldn't call that horror. It's more of a thriller. Um, speaking of the Ferrara connection, that's got Zoe Lund, um, who was a frequent collaborator with Ferrara. Um, she had some input into the script for. Bad Lieutenant, didn't you? Bad Lieutenant, I should say, really. Um, but she also acted in uh, Miss 45, Angel of Vengeance, didn't she? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Bogosian. Uh, and that's quite... Uh, it's more of a thriller, um, sort of Hitchcockian thriller, in the vein of, you know, the De Palma thrillers that were popular at the time, yeah. uh, Body Double and so on and so forth. Um, the Stuff, of course, which I think I think is quite a clever parody of consumerism, Um Feels more relevant today than it did in '85, possibly. Uh, Island of the Alive and Return to Salem's Lot, which again are Moriarty collaborations that are, um, you know, of of, of sort of <laughs> dubious, <laughs> dubious quality. Deadly Illusion, another thriller. So you know, the, the, there's kind of this 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 balance of thrillers and and um, horror pictures. Uh, I, I didn't know he wrote the uh, Maniac Cop trilogy. Yeah, yeah, Maniac Cop apparently has been remade. Um, uh, it's in, it's in um, process of pre-production, um, and it, it, with uh, Nicholas Winding Refn um, and oh, wow. Ed, Ed Brubaker's, uh, you know, who's, who's written quite a lot of comic book, um, uh, uh, about some uh, Gotham Central, didn't he? And uh, he's written some crime novels as well. He's, he's sort of working on the script for that. So I think that's been in, in pre-production for a while. I think that's probably one of those productions that, that stalled when the virus hit. To be honest. Um, he's, just, uh, he's, he's written three uh, three episodes of Columbo as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's got a new uh, friend. Uh, say, uh, a bone, is that, is that known by a different title as well? Because, Dial uh, Rat, yeah. yeah. Um, I think Bone, 
Um, I don't, I don't want to sort of confuse things, but um, I can't remember which which title it was released over here as originally. Um, I think Darvat might have been the UK title. Um, I, I do know there were sort of several different cuts of it. Yeah, yeah. yes. Both, yeah. both the original title and Dial Rat. Yeah, UK was Dial Rat, apparently, according to the IMDb. Um, yeah. uh, and I, I, that's that's quite accurate. It's one of those films that's massively underdistributed, really. There's a, a DVD from, I think, Blue Underground in the States that, that's, that's kind of probably one of the only legitimate DVD releases of it. Uh, but it's, it's a really good film. Uh, you know, like I say, if you think of Karen as a horror uh, director, it, 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 it sort of proves, proves that he isn't. But the films, I think, that we remember of Karen's tend to be those those horror pictures, don't they? Um, and as, as you say, Aid, it's, it's that, that era, that early video era, when horror was the thing um, that, that, that consolidates that. Exactly, yeah. So uh, in terms of the um, production background, did anybody sort of get anything about that? Or No, but when you were saying about the uh, the Chrysler building thing, that when, when we first mentioned um, looking at Q, um it was that that immediately sort of um cropped up in my memory there was a there was a book that i couldn't find but i remember it was either in this book or um a, a documentary that i saw which was all about the involvement of the chrysler building and why that was in there and i, I don't remember any of the details but i know that that was quite a story connected with the film yeah i i, I mean i think the chrysler building cohen describes it as a perfect marriage of concept and location which uh you know, maybe a bit of hyperbole, but uh, you know, he's got a valid point there. I think thematically it's important because the Chrysler Building is in the middle of Manhattan's business district, and the final Q's, um, the, the, the 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 winged serpent. I don't mean Quinn's. Q's final moments are atop the um, um, uh, the Aztec style pyramid, aren't they? In the um, uh, the uh, um, Oh, what's that building called? But both of them are, are linked by a theme of... I've got some notes on that for what we talk about a bit later. But both of them are linked by a theme of, of, of business. The Bankers Trust Building on Wall Street. And both of those buildings are linked by a theme of sort of business, really, which is what connects uh, Q. Um, I think what, I want to come on to back to that a bit later in the, in the interpretations. I mean, the story about the Chrysler Building in terms of the production was that, that, that Cohen um, had... Um, and I'm just I'm just looking at my notes to make sure I get this accurate. But 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 what Cohen did was that he approached the the managers of the Chrysler Building a couple of times, and eventually uh, they kept it kept sending him down because he wanted he was so insistent that he wanted to use the Chrysler Building. Well, the production needed to be in the Chrysler Building, and um, and eventually they agreed to let him shoot there for I think it was fifteen thousand dollars a day, uh, which for an indie production I don't know at the time. Uh, in terms of modern money, it sounds quite expensive. Um, but but what he did was improvise scenes around the space because they arrived the, and, and they realised they had limited time to shoot in the building. So uh, it, it, they they were shown the you know the floor that the security guard and and Quinn sort of land on when when they climb up the stairs in the first instance. And um, uh, Cohen saw this ladder <laughs> up to the needle of the Chrysler building. And apparently, you know, he just climbed this ladder and thought, this is perfect. <laughs> That's why, you know, that, that pursuit that you were talking about, Aidy, where where mm. Quinn sort of disappears. Mm. Um, I think that's why, because there were they had limited time to shoot in the Chrysler building, and Cohen improved a lot of that and sort of said, well, we'll use this 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 further level, 
this higher level. Um, uh, and, you know, apparently there was no sort of safety uh, uh, railings. Um, you know, when you see Michael Moriarty leaning over the um, uh, leaning over the uh, the edge of the building and looking down, mm. um, it's, uh, however many meters it is up from the ground. Apparently, there was nothing to stop the crew from falling at that point. <laughs> and uh, you know, so he had guys sort of hefting up these uh, lights and the cameras, and 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 Moriarty's quite sort of fearless about it. And and uh, and, and he says at one point in the film, "I'm I'm, I'm scared of everything, but not heights." <laughs> I think. Yeah. He says, and um, you know, so the, at the very top of the building, uh, the, that ladder was very treacherous, and that was the only way up to to, to get to the needle. Um, so, uh, you know, the crew had to carry these lights up and, and the cameras up and so on and so forth. And the build, building manager, managers apparently didn't know that they were shooting in the needle of the building because they weren't supposed to be. And, and there was a, a sort of a period where um, production had to stop for uh, the, the call the insurance guy out. And the, you know, the insurance guy sort of went up to said, well, it's going to cost you X amount to, 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 to shoot up here because it's so much more dangerous. Um, but yeah, I think that's why they make so much. Why Cohen makes so much of that 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 uh, that chase up the Chrysler building because they had such limited time and and he sort of improvised around it. Right. Became so sort of fascinated with it. I think <laughs> in many ways the actual nest. Uh, apparently, uh, the creature's nest that was shot in a, a different location at, uh, on the top floor of a warehouse somewhere. Um, and <laughs> apparently, when 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 production ended. Um, uh, they didn't take the nest down, and somebody went up there and they thought there was some giant creature. And it was in the New York Times or one of the New York newspapers. There's a mysterious giant creature built a nest in this warehouse, and uh, you know uh, it was the, the the remains of one of the uh, the sets for for Q, which I think is quite amusing. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, in terms of the production background, um, as I, I think I've said earlier, that Cohen was working on either Jory at the time, and he was. Um, uh, that was a studio picture, um, and um, and that eventually was finished by another another director. But he was frustrated by the fact that uh, um, uh, he had to work to a schedule. There was storyboarding and 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 sort of you know uh, a shot list and so on. And Cohen, being that independent filmmaker that he is, liked to improvise. So um, there's a quote somewhere that he says on that commentary track, "I had to do it my way," he says. And, and he, he uh, got a bit bolshy, I think, to produce the divider jury, and, and he was fired from that picture. And he, 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 as, a, as a sort of a, 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 a um, what should we say, a, a two-fingered salute, perhaps, um, he, he went and assembled Q as a project, and, and he assembled that within 48 hours. And there's a point where he went on to production uh, for Q with it, after 48 hours of, of sort of plugging it and, and, and uh, sort of writing the, the, the script or the outline for the script, um, uh, you know, as a way of uh, uh, um, his paths crossed with the, the producers of either jury. And it was his way of uh, sort of saying, look what, look what I can do, look what I can achieve. Uh, sorry, Aidan. No, sorry, that, that reminds me a lot of, um, of Terry Gilliam's Tideland, where yeah. on, on, the, on the DVD there's... There's him, Terry Gilliam, introducing the film, saying basically his bad experiences with the um, the um, uh, what's his face um, Brad Pitt movie, and uh, basically saying Tideland was his 
two fingered salute to no that, that, that's it. it it was just that that attitude really reminded me of that and the fact that he actually puts it on the dvd introducing the introducing the film saying yeah yeah this is why i made this film which stephen king does to a a, a less successful um sort of example in for um what's it called the um the oh, i always forget the name of the the the, the thing with the trucks Oh, maximum overdrive. That's, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, introduces uh, that. he introduces that as well, saying, "I'm, I'm sick and tired of the directors turning my books into films <laughs> and and not doing a very good job. So uh, I've decided to direct this film and do it my way." I think Apparently, we should like watch that. Again. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I know, I know maximum overdrive is his, his way of uh, his way of making his books into films is apparently to do it really badly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> really badly. Oh. I mean, the other thing that that that, that Moriarty went on to uh, improv, and that was how he built that relationship with Moriarty. Uh, Cohen, sorry, went on to improv, and that was how he built that Mori- uh, relationship with Moriarty. He talks about unleashing Moriarty. I think that's quite interesting. Um, um, I also, it, it, you know, in that commentary track that I referenced earlier, he, he refers, he says that most movies, and he's talking, I think, about his experiences on studio films like Either Jory. He says that are the closest thing to factory labour. With me, it's different, and 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 with Q, I, I think you get that that feeling, that strong feeling that it's such a reaction against that studio method, with that context, that reaction against that studio approach to making pictures. You know, shooting on real locations with a limited schedule and resources, using improvisation to develop the concept, and allowing the actors to sort of be unleashed and have fun, um, so to speak. Um, I mean, the other thing that that that, that Cohen mentions in that. Uh, that um, commentary about the the production was, uh, and, and this ties into something that we were saying earlier. But one of his intentions really was to um, make a picture that combined the uh, semi-documentary style of films noir, like The Naked City and, and uh, House on Telegraph Hill, with uh, the use of handheld cameras and so on and so forth, and to combine that with with the monster movie and, and, and as a reaction against the sort of the dry characteri- characterizations of monster movies. And I think, you know, looking at Q in, in situ in, in, within the context of uh, uh, early, the early 80s, you know, if you think about monster movies that had gone before, <clears throat> there wasn't an awful lot to say about the human characters. Whereas when you, I think when you watch Q, you, you, you watch Moriarty, and the monster mm. movie a bit of an afterthought, really. Um, I, I don't know if that's maybe overegging the pudding slightly, but but you look at the actors, you look at their performances, um, and, and the monsters there in the background, um, and, and Moriarty builds so much of it. Yeah, Carradine's not bad. You know, and some Richard Roundtree. I've got a lot of time for Richard Roundtree as an actor. He's, he's pretty good. He's, he's not got a great part. Candy Clark as well as as Moriarty's um, Quinn's girlfriend. I think she's pretty good. But I think you know when you watch it, it's Moriarty that steals yeah. that show. I think, and I think uh, that's quite different from the monster movies that have gone before. I mean, you think about the '76 King Kong, and, and uh, you know Jeff Bridges might as well be you know as sort of a, a Christmas decoration only from. King Kong's nose. <laughs> Bless him. I, I like Jeff Bridges as an actor, but he's not given a lot to do in that picture, is he? You know. No. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Absolutely. I mean, when we come to the cast performances, I mean, that's that's the main the main well, thing about this whole film. Well, I think we probably should move into them. I think should we if we go into the casting performances? Do you want yeah. To? Well, I'll just just I a mean, couple of things that I'll note: the the, the helicopter okay. shots. I don't know if you knew by Al Cirillo, who shot the helicopter shots for Superman, um, and they work nicely. I think. Yeah. 
think. Uh, you know, the original Superman, Richard Donner's Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in terms of casting, this segues nicely. Bruce Willis was almost cast. He was unknown at the time. He was working in the bar, I think. Was almost cast as in the, in uh, as Shepherd, the role that went to Carradine. But but Arkoff wanted a, an actor that had a name, if you like, at the time. Um, and, and, and Moriarty's role as well. Uh, um, Eddie Murphy apparently was considered uh, when he was a stand-up comic at the time was considered for that role, but but Cohen had already sort of made a gentleman's agreement with Moriarty. I think I like Eddie Murphy, but I think Moriarty would have been so much. Uh, uh, I, I should say I like Eddie Murphy in the eighties, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I think he would have been so you know the, the era of uh, forty-eight hours and so on. But I think you know Moriarty really the film would be a different film. <laughs> without uh, not uh, not in a good way without Maria. Yeah. So I think that segues nicely into the uh, casting um, and some of the performances. Would 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 um, uh, uh, Ad? Would you like to go first? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Moriarty. I mean, I'm I can't say I'm a huge. I don't know much of his work, sort of thing. I, I and uh, finding out, sort of thing, that he does a lot of improv. And no, I, I never watched Law and Order. I have to say, um, so crime procedurals. If they're not Midsummer Murders, I just don't want to know. Um, <laughs> that, that I would have not have matched that with, with you, Andy, at all. Peter, did um, you watch Law and Order? No, no. Oh, um, so, so um, I'm not aware of the sort of thing. Um, I, it's it's a it's an interesting performance. I, I mean, I can tell that a lot of it is improvised. You can just you can spot it. And I get. I mean, unlike yourself, Paul, I get exactly why the uh, barman put the uh, put the music on. Because <laughs> 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 uh, I would have done exactly the same if someone guy sat at my piano. Guy, I'm like, no, I'm putting the radio on. Sorry, mate. I don't know what you're on about. Um, yeah, um, it's not appropriate. <laughs> no, exactly. Sort of thing. It's like, if you like you know, jazz, maybe yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it, jazz is you know no. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not for me. Um, so um, I, I found his performance in, in, interesting. I mean, it, yeah. It, it, uh, I think he he had. I don't know. I think he was giving a bit from my point of view, sort of thing. Watching it, and I think this is what I'm saying about like that chase sequence things. Like that. I think he was given a bit too much of a long leash. I think yeah. he could have been reined in a bit. Cohen could have pulled him in a bit, sort of thing. So I think at times, sort of thing, he just just like there's there's moments um, like in that the, the, you're saying the first sequence they shot in the apartment with um, with his girlfriend, um, you know, Candy Clark, sort of thing, with 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 having this sequence sort of thing, and he's he's burying his head in the pillow, sort of thing, and and I, and I just I, you know I, I was just I was more more annoyed with him. I did, there's no I didn't feel anything for him, and I think that's the big thing I had with this film was that none of the characters actually made me empathise or feel anything kind of pity or you know be on their side. Um, the the film doesn't. None of really the character. I mean, Caradine. We'll come to Caradine a bit, but sort of thing. But Moriarty's performance is so like, so you know, he just distances you constantly that I I couldn't empathise with him. And this is like the main character, and it is the driving force. I just I was like, I'm just, I, 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 you know, I hope you get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hoping for that at the end, sort of thing. I was hoping the big twist, sort of thing. He's going to take him up. They're going to look over the egg, and then he's going to get eaten. And I was like, good. Because I just kind of want you to, because he just, you know, his whole, I think Candy Clark sums him up sort of thing quite well sort of thing. I think it's quite a nice bit sort of thing when they have this whole sequence where he, he does the, 
I want, you know, it reminded me of the bit in RoboCop, if I'm honest. I want a really fast car that does really shitty mileage. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what it's doing is I want a million dollars and I want the rights to the photos. And I was thinking, is this, you know, Cohen's probably going, oh, look at RoboCop. That ripped me off as well. Yeah. Um, um, and so this whole thing is just, just it's like, oh, God, I just hope you get eaten. Um, yeah. I really do. I'm not. I'm not warming to your character in the slightest sort of thing. I didn't. I found him, you know, um, um, and, and I don't know whether that was the choice that they made. Whether that I was think some of that in that scene is is intentional, and, and there's a sense of bitterness in there. There's a real sort of sense of resentment mm. there. Yeah. Uh, he says he says to the the guy the the guy at the end that, that comes to execute him in the the hotel room, and he says uh, sacrifice him, and he says. Uh, I've been shit on by City Hall. I've been shit on by you. Yeah. Do it, you know. There's, there's this real sense of sort of. Uh, it's not a, a particularly sympathetic character. I think no, that's fair that, to say. That, yeah, exactly. And that, I think that was my my problem with him. Sort of thing was that yeah, you know, somebody who's had all those, you know, because that we alludes to being uh, sent to prison for something he didn't commit or something <laughs> yeah. earlier, um, and, and, and all this sort of thing. And these are elements. That anything else you could actually like you said draw paint this character into quite a sympathetic character that we can empathize with and that we can be on the side of and they somehow managed to not do that <laughs> in, in a way that that, <laughs> that that baffled me sort of thing because it's like you've got all the ingredients there um but it's just just i don't know i don't know whether it's his performance his petulance um, I mean, at times he's acting like a child, and I yeah, think, yeah. You, know, you know, and and I was just like, oh my god, you know, I've got I, I've got a child of my own. I don't need to deal with this in the same <laughs> well. I don't need to watch one off the screen. Yeah. And, 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 and so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's a bad performance. I'm just saying that for the central character, and I think this goes for most of them. There's no there's no emotional connection with any of the kind that for me that's yeah. just like the way that's, I think it makes sense yeah yeah Peter what do you think about Quinn uh, right um, yeah well I mean I I wanted him to get eaten as well but uh, maybe for different <laughs> um, sort of a slight, slightly different angle I mean I'll I'll, I'll sort of go, to, go to <laughs> you can photograph it in two ways <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in my opinion, uh, Michael Mariotti is triumphant as the twitchy ex-junkie Michael Quinn, neurotically stumbling through the film. Quinn's character is excellently set up in the first meeting with him. He sits with some organised crime types, uh, negotiating the terms of his... Next those are real... Sorry, Peter, to interrupt you, but those are real rent-a-mob type... Uh, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you look at those actors and you think, are they... Yeah. You know, when, when you know the window cleaner... <laughs> was a real window cleaner. And you look at those guys that, yeah, we're, we're the mob. We're going to rob this place. And I you thought, think, well, uh, sorry. I thought the, gonna... guy, the guy with the moustache sort of thing, I yes. thought Cohen had said, oh, get me Dennis Farina. I know he's not he's not available. <laughs> All right, get, get me his non-union. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dennis Farina, I mean, again, you know, he was uh, uh, an ex-cop, wasn't he, playing a gangster yeah. in most things. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Peter. Sorry, it's just a... So uh, right from the start, he's, uh, he's described as a nervous eater, um, foreshadowing... <laughs> foreshadowing his general unease and quick-to-run attitude that will, um, uh, with all that is to come, um, his nervousness spiralling into unhinging uh, maglamagnical... Oh, I, should have, I should have thought about this before I wrote <laughs> these big words. Uh, maglamagnical <laughs> desperation. <laughs> maglamagnical. That's the one. That'll do. <laughs> uh, his, his desperate urge, and, and, and for me this is coming on to later the sort of interpretation of the film, um, his desperate urge to uh, be the big man for one lousy minute. Um, 
not only are his eating habits nervous, he's also shown to be greedy, another yeah. fatal flaw. Um, in the first few seconds uh, of his inter uh, introduction, he gets uh, stiffed with the court, reminded he hasn't worked for eight months, he's openly mocked. It is openly mocked. In our first meeting with him, it's clear he's weak, unpleasant, and destined for great calamity. Uh, mumbling to himself, uh, self narration like Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe without the call, he stumbles and twitches his way from one disaster to another, um, fails in his presentation of himself as a hardened criminal in the opening scene, is dismissed in his attempts at, as the swaggering jazz musician. Fumbles the diamonds, expunging any notion that he's going to wind up with a girl, the loot, or his life. Um, so, so for me, it was, it, you know, the the idea of him, you know, wanting to get eaten at the end was just because he was so perfectly set up to fail. Um, yeah. And uh, so for me, it was like it leads to consideration where the film falls down, maybe um, in the fact that. Um, when when Quinn is saved at the end uh, by the, the knife-wielding serpent, <clears throat> uh, saved by Shepard, he's all smiles and declares, I know I'm not afraid anymore, saying yeah, you yeah. have a future for the character, which was so ideally destined to fail. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing that, that you know, Quinn, for, for me, was a triumph of the film. It was absolutely amazing and wonderful, but he should have he should have died. He, he, you know, he should have been eaten rather than uh, having this epiphany that wasn't really set up uh, by anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've got some notes on the interpretation, but I'll, you know about Quinn, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably jump into those in, in a second or two, actually, that sort of t t ties in with what you've said. Uh, I mean, at this stage, uh, I mean, Moriarty at this stage in his career sort of oscillated between quite sort of uh, uh, respected pictures and, and pictures like this. Um, in my old man's place. Uh, because Pale Rider came a few years after. It's, it's pretty good in Pale Rider, isn't he? As the uh, sort of put-upon father um, who will stop the rain. And then, you know, he ends up doing stuff like Troll and Blood mm. Link. And, so there's kind of weird oscillation between sort of respectable pictures and, and, and sort of trash, <laughs> really. Um, mm. Where you think Q sits is probably a sort of a matter of opinion, I think. Um, but, I mean, the story about Moriarty's casting was that, that Cohen uh, met him in a cafe and approached him. Um, and, and Moriarty apparently gave Cohen his home address, to which Moriarty sent the script for Q. Um, and and uh, you know Cohen, Cohen says in the commentary track that you know if if, if Moriarty had, had sort of given him his agent's address, then probably the script would probably have not never gotten to him. But because he gave his home address and Moriarty read it, and it's probably something a bit different. And, and uh, you know he signed up for it. And, and um, you know the, the 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 first scene the shot was that that apartment scene apparently with. Uh, Quinn and, and Candy Clark's character and uh, Moriarty liked the fact that Cohen let him improv around the role and and, and Cohen talks about Moriarty's ability to uh, he, he would say to Cohen at the end of a, a, a scene or after a, a, the other actors had shot their part of the scene and send them home you know you just I can and Cohen would say well don't you need them for you know to, to sort of react to and, so, and, and and Moriarty would say well no I can just imagine that that's the, that's the acting part you know and and that's quite you know that that's quite sort of characteristic of um, other stories that you hear about Moriarty as well um, but Moriarty was uh, had a side career as a, a jazz musician um, and he's won awards for his music as well as I'm sure you know um, and um, I don't think Cohen knew about this but there was a, a scene where 
um, Moriarty was. Oh, there's a moment behind the scenes where Moriarty, I think, was listening to a tape of some music he'd record, and Cohen said, "What's that?" And Moriarty said, "It's something that I've written." It's, I think that was the song "Evil Dream" that, that 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 was used in the film. You know, that's the one that he sings in the bar, and then um, I think you know during the chase sequence, you hear it on the the audio track, don't you, as, as a non-diegetic piece. Oh, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're not I, a jazz fan, are you, Adrian? I'm not a jazz fan sort of thing, but I'm not, I'm not uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, if it fits the scene, that's fine sort of thing. But yeah, that sequence sort of thing where he's running away down the uh, fire escape and just that. Why do you that, do? What do you do? <laughs> I, I, was, I was sat staring at the TV going, I, 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 what's going on? What is going on? Oh, I love I love that. <laughs> I love that part. I, think, I, I like think, that. I mean, yeah. I I used to years ago when I when I did, I, I, as I said, I wasn't joking. I used to be lead first violin in, a, in an orchestra, but I also used to play uh, jazz guitar as well, and and uh, that was back in my sort of teenage years and early twenties. And and I do like jazz, and I, I do like I like that song. I think it's great, and I think it's. I would disagree with you, Aidy, respectfully, but That's I think fine. I love That's I love fine. the use of it in that that chase sequence, you know, and I think it's. Um, it's so sort of evocative, I think, for me. Um, uh, I think, but uh, but you know, if we all had the same opinions, would be like cabbages, wouldn't we? That's what uh, yeah. Patrick McGowan says in the prisoner. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the other thing about Moriarty, of course, is a, he's a method actor, as we know, and he, he sort of gets into character, and, and that's kind of you know one of the things that that method actors tend to go a bit strange in their older years, and, and I think Moriarty's. <laughs> Not a cast aspersion. I've never met him, but from from stories that you hear, I think he's uh, he's he's sort of internalised a lot of these characters that he's played over time. Um, but yeah, I think he's like I say. I think um, he's a, he's a he's a pretty good actor when he's on form. And and uh, you know, if you get a chance to watch those early episodes of Law and Order, it's worth checking them out. I mean, the thing about uh, telling what you were saying, Peter, about uh, the character of Quinn is that you know Quinn's this uh, perennial loser, isn't he? And there's that line in Sam Peckinpah's uh, uh, *Big Head of Alfredo Garcia*, and Benny says, um, "That's the character played by Warren Oates." Says nobody loses all the time, but but and of course he does, <laughs> but Quinn does as well. I think in mm. um, in um, uh, in Q, uh, you know, even though he's that 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 he's, he's far too good to be playing jazz in that bar, it doesn't fit, <laughs> and he's not got the opportunity to sort of, you know, let his his, his light shine. Uh, it's got mm. to be kept under a bushel. So, Peter, are you going to say well, something? Yeah, again, again, I think it's that that petulant sort of bit where he's he's negotiating his terms. It, it, it I, I won't be able to put this into words very well, but it, it, it it's it's. You know, we, we we can't talk about words, but we we see this this entitlement of. You know, life. This isn't what life's supposed to be. You know, I'm supposed to get me moment, and so he gets this opportunity, and it's like, and he's listing off this, this sort of stereotypical shopping list of of what means he's made it, and it's like, you know, no, I've I've won. I want to win. You know, this this is life's not been how it's supposed to be, and and now I've got a chance, and I'm going to grab it and squeeze it for all for all I can, Um, because I want to be the big man. You know, and that that quote. Where he he shouts after his girlfriend as she leaves him, you know. I just want to be the big man for one lousy minute. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as well, there's a great line when he's, he's negotiating um, with the uh, the city officials and and uh, you know he's, he's he's trying to sort of get the rights to the film, and the yeah. photographs and so on and so forth. And he says, uh, you know, I want a Nixon-like pardon. And I think that's a wonderful mm. line. That's sort of very evocative of the air, isn't it? And, and sort of corruption yeah. and so on. They, they, and he, um, sorry, Paul. 
he, no, no, carry he, on, please. He mentions, he mentions uh, is it Murdoch as well? His his name's thrown yeah. in there as well. Yeah, fetch me Rupert Murdoch, yeah. yeah. And and, and uh, one of the cops, I, th- I think it might be Richard Roundtree's character, I can't recall, but sort of say, you, you know, you want to make a bundle out of this. And he says, well, mayors and politicians have done that. What about mm. me? And I think that speaks so much to the character. I mean, the other thing about the character is the connection in terms of the initial between Quinn and, and Quetzalcoatl. There's sort of a, a, a there is a, a connection between the two. One's at the bottom of the food chain, one's at the top. They're Quinn's at the bottom, Q's at the top. Uh, they both share that first initial. And Carradine's character, Shepard, wonders at one point if Q's using Quinn to lure victims to the lair. And that's the mm. reason why it got killed him. And I think that's that's quite interesting because, you know, one of the things I'll say in terms of the interpretation, I'll get onto that as well at the same time so that, so that, uh, uh, so that we cover some of that, is that... Um, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you look at that creature as the logical extension of a social order that legitimises cruelty on so many levels with a pronounced pecking order um, and there's a food, clear food chain in the film, isn't there? Of course, Quinn bullies his girlfriend, Candy Clark's character the Huds bully Quinn you know, the gangsters is in league with bully him, the police frame Quinn hence that's the mm. reason why he's on this path of crime is, is because he says that his first conviction was when a, when a, a police officer uh, uh, planted cocaine on him. Yeah, he and, says, and you, the... you made me or something, didn't he? Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, even Shepard's at the end of this, isn't he, with um, the character played by Malachi McCourt, the police commissioner, that, that sort of says that he wants this story about the, the creature to be buried mm. because um, he says, that, you know, I'd feel com- more comfortable killing a, a monster than I would if, it, if we say that it's a god because he's quite clear, clearly an Irish Catholic. That actor, Malachi McCourt, actually is Frank McCourt's brother, who wrote Angela's Ashes. Um, I didn't realise that until um, I was doing a bit of digging about the film. That's Frank McCourt's brother playing the, the, the police commissioner. But the creature's really an amplification of that sort of way of life, that system of hierarchies and inequalities. And I think that's what the use of the Chrysler building and the, the Bankers Trust building in Wall Street ties into, that, you know, the, 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 the creatures not not to say it's it's just capitalism because I think that's kind of a bit that's a bit too um, on the nose but it's, it's certainly a, a, a an icon of a society that's sort of very much hierarchical and, and very unequal and, and has this clearly defined pecking order I think well this is this is the thing for me with with the building and now I don't know if I've completely miss uh, sort of mixed this up in my head uh, but I remember seeing this documentary I don't know if it was connected directly to the film or if it was just a documentary about the two tall buildings in america in in new york sorry um fighting to be the tallest and the fact that the deciding factor ended up being an, a sort of an empty non-functional unfinished sort of folly sort of plopped on the top of the building yeah sort of, um that 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 won them the title of the tallest building and that, and that it represented the chase uh, for finite financial super uh, superiority and, and monopoly and the fact that it was just this this bit that had no function and it was all about bragging rights and, and all this sort of thing and that sort of seems to weave its way into the film yeah yeah i think i think that's part of it isn't it that's part of the sort of the context the the uh, the texture of it i think um i mean the other things that um was anything else that i put about Moriarty's performance. I think that was probably the, 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 the major bits that I wanted to cover. But I think in, in all of Moriarty and Cohen's um, 
collaborations, you've got this real sense of energy, I think. Regardless mm. of the, the quality of the films, I think you've got this strong sense of sort of energy. And there's a lot there's some great improv in, in the stuff as well. You can see there's some wonderful scenes there, like the, the, the sequence where Moriarty's character goes in and, and sort of tries to photograph the place where they're they're not making the stuff, but they're the the sort of packaging it, aren't they, for consumption? Uh, some great improvised dialogue there. What about Carradine? Is that, is, that, uh, is that Shepherd or was that Shepherd? Yeah, yeah. I've I've put um, we're introduced to Detective Shepherd, uh, a Callahan esque cop, spotting long hair, blue slacks, a pale brown jacket. He even says shit and displays a lackluster regard for the case. Um, but then, not that Shepherd's attitude is uh, and demeanour seems out of ordinary for these cops. In this city, detectives shrug and regard flayed corpses with their hands in their pockets. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's quite a potty mouth, some potty mouth dialogue, I think, for the air as well, isn't? It? I think that was one of the things that hit me when I, I watched the film for the first time. Is is you know, how many times that f bombs dropped? <laughs> um, I mean, we, we, sorry, Ad. No, no, go on. Sorry, sorry. No, no, you carry on. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> I was just going to say, Caradine was. Yeah, I think you nailed it. They had sort of, uh, you know, Dirty Harry esque. Um, but I, I, I was just a bit bemused at his speed of willingness to accept <laughs> what was going on um i don't know if it's like a if that's the norm in you know new york police um just to sort of go you know headless body flayed corpse aztecs <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> giant giant serpent i mean if that that's how most cases go then fair enough i get it sort of thing i'm guessing they don't um, and, and that's evidenced by the guy with the pipe later on who says, you know, get rid of this uh, report. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the chief commissioner, I think, was it the police commissioner? That's, yeah, Malachi McCoy. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I thought that Caradine's performance sort of thing was quite was, was, was interesting, but, you know, he's Caradine, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't I mean, break out of his wheelhouse very much, in it? I mean, this is the thing about Carradine as well. I mean, you know, um, Cohen talks about that in the commentary. He says that uh, Carradine told him once that the problem was once you get into B-movies, you couldn't get out of them anymore. Then Carradine sort of accepted all kinds of jobs because he was, over his career, apparently he was hounded by the IRS for sort of back taxes. And uh, there's a, Cohen says something about, um, in that commentary track, about, uh, you know, he didn't go to a house, uh, uh, he didn't visit Carradine at a house where there wasn't some sort of notice on the door from the IRS. Um but uh, but Carradine progressed at that point in his career. He'd gone from B pictures with Roger Corman to A films like um, The Long Riders and, and Bound for Glory, the Woody Guthrie biopic. And then uh, he'd worked with Ingmar Bergman on a film that wasn't particularly successful critically. But after that, he fell back on B films. And then this, a similar thing happened to him in the early 2000s as well with uh, when he, he appeared in Kill Bill. And then after Kill Bill, he just sort of fell back on some really awful, awful B pictures. Um, I think one of his last films was made by the uh, British Ed Wood, wasn't it? Who was, um, uh, yeah, Richard Driscoll. The, I can't remember what that film was called. I think it was Highway to Hell. Was it Highway to Hell? I'll tell you in a second. Yeah, Highway to Hell, El Dorado, yeah, uh, which came out finally in 2012, which was three years after Carradine uh, died, of course. But yeah, Carradine, um, yes, it's a dirty Harry-esque performance, isn't it? It's a, a maverick, free-thinking, free-spirited cop. I think the one scene that Carradine has that, that sort of speaks to me is that frustration that he has when Malachi McCourt told him to bury the report. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, he rips it off and there's this real sort of sense of anger mm. on his face. I think, I think that's, that's a great scene, I think. <laughs> he, does I mean, rip it, he does rip it up as well. 
He does rip it up. Yeah, he rips it up well. Um, I mean, both Carradine and, and Richard Roundtree, uh, you know, appeared in uh, Chuck Norris films, didn't they, about this time as well. Uh, uh, Roundtree was in A Knife and an Eye, and Carradine was in Lone Wolf Brigade, which, uh, uh, that's a film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a film. I, I, do the, I, I do get the mixed up sort of thing. Is is it David Car- and I, I don't want to look on IMDb sort of thing, so I'm going to ask, is it, is, which, is it Caroline was in, which Caroline was in Kung Fu? That was David. It is David, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. it's the same one. Yeah, yeah. I always, because I get it's, him and Keith mixed up. Yeah, the one that were both in the long riders, weren't they, as well? So, yeah. um, I mean, uh, one of David's half brothers, Bruce Carradine, because John Carradine, the father, apparently had quite a few. He's married to quite a few women, wasn't he, throughout his life? And Bruce Carradine is was the brother of uh, half brother of David Carradine. He appears as one of the victims, you know, that that, that, that that's flayed uh, uh, mutualistically. And um, the other, the other. Um, the moment where Carradine appears uh, with his lover or wife in bed, that was Cohen's apartment. And apparently the woman was Carradine's then wife. Mm, um, yeah. and, and Cohen said to him, I said, I said, Carradine, if you're going to be in bed with someone, you might as well be in bed with your wife. He said. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful line. Um, but um, that's quite an interesting, because he's there looking at these awful, awful crime scenes photographs. And she's, she's uh, quite nonchalantly, yeah. she says, what, what are you looking at? And, um, you know, he, he says uh, uh, at the end of that scene, as he walks off, there's just this line, I've got to take my birth control pill, he says. <laughs> Which I, think, I don't know. It's just one of those sort of throwaway lines that, that it seems to added, added to the mix later. Um, um, I don't know. It's, I don't think it's with uh, live sound, but uh, it's quite uh, quite an amusing line, that, I think. Yeah. The only, about, the, um, the, sorry, the, the only scene that I really... And this was one of the only scenes in the film that I, I really liked from a, a character point of view was the um, Moriarty, uh, the, the Quinn um, and, and Caradine's uh, scene in the uh, in the cafe. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Where where he's trying to trick him into giving the location, and they're all about dropping the big tarpaulin over the building, um, and he's trying to Which trick is him, a, in, I, trying to trick him. And I thought that that actually worked quite well because that that. That that character interaction sort of thing felt, um, you know, it, it showed that Caradine, it, the Caradine's character sort of thing, you know, felt almost like a detective at that point. You know, he knew how yeah. to work, a, he knew how to work a person, like yeah. he got some experience in doing that. I thought that was quite well written, and like as clever as Moriarty thought he was, he could see that he was. He, he, I get the feeling that he was. I was blind to where he was being led. He was sort of, you know, then obviously he got ruined sort of thing. But that that I, I really that character interaction sequence was one of the few in the film that I was like, actually quite, I was like, Oh, this is, you know, this is all right. This is, this is feels like um, they're actually in their role sort of thing and working properly together. Yeah. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a bit like that moment in heat, isn't it? With Pacino and De Niro in some ways. <laughs> but yeah, you, 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 there's, it, the, the, the way they play off each other, I think is, 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 is pretty good in that scene. And it, it would have been nice to see a bit more of that. I think in some mm. ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think otherwise, I think Caradine's, you know, just, I mean, the, the sequence where he's talking to professors about Aztecs or ancient myths sort of thing, he just, just seems, you know, we need to, you know, it's like, here's plot. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and that was that was a bit, you know, but that, that sequence felt char- character rather than... Yeah, that's just yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah, we could get rid of the Aztec stuff and uh, just stick more of... Uh, 
Quinn and, and Street Shepherd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I know what you're saying about the acid, but I, I sort of like the fact that Carradine's character sort of goes out of his way to research this properly. He goes to the Museum of Aztec <laughs> Beliefs, and then he talks to a, a professor at, at sort of Columbia University, doesn't he? And, and it's kind of, I, I like that aspect of his character in some ways. I think. Those the scenes possibly aren't what they could be, but uh, but mm. I think the idea that you've got a, a detective that, that sort of goes out of his way to do proper research, I think is is nice. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I I don't have a, an issue with that sort of thing. I just have an issue with the way that this kind of like that they happen so quickly. This doesn't seem to be any build up. Like like I said, it's like headless flayed Aztecs. There's no. Yeah. I, I, I don't know whether I, I was saying to people before we started sort of thing whether whether I missed a scene or something or there's something missing where the, that 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 connection is made. I'm, I don't know whether I missed it or not. I don't know. Uh, maybe I did sort of thing. Um, yeah, but I think I was a bit sort of brain dead after the uh, the, the the chase at the Chrysler building. And maybe there's something <laughs> yeah. in there. I don't. I don't know. And the scats again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, think, I think I was hypnotized at one point. I just came round and there was. Uh, Why do you do? What do you? Yes. <laughs> So uh, I mean, in terms of interpretations, I don't know what 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 you've got. Um, you know, uh, sort of summing up responses. Peter, have you got anything that you'd like to sort of add in terms of interpretations? Um, well, yeah, I think um, we haven't mentioned the uh, the effects yet, but uh, um, again, I, I suppose it's uh, you know looking at Cohen's other work. Um, doesn't seem to shy away from philosophical and moral ambitions, um, so it's hard to imagine he's not making some kind of statement with Q. Um, you know, you could sort of offhandly sort of say, does the serpent represent mankind's soaring, ever-present bloodthirst? Uh, does the cult serve as a bridging of the concept of human inhumanity and the inhuman monster? Uh, but I think it's Quinn, isn't it? It's Quinn's lost desperate part of us all, swamped and swallowed up in the sprawling metropolis of modern life, desperate to count for something to be the big man for one lousy minute. Um, and I think with you saying about the, uh, the, the food chain thing, that, uh, you know, the, the bottom dwellers and, uh, you know, just wanting to count, wanting to be legitimised. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. AD, have you got anything to add? Um, I, I don't, I mean, I think... I think I've made it pretty clear my, my <laughs> feelings. I'm not. It's not the best. I I, I don't know. Uh, I think Pete's reading of it sort of thing is is quite spot on. I think there's some interesting things there, and I, I like your comment about the food chain. I, I I don't know. I think it is. You know, you could try and read things into it about what Cohen was trying to say or, or whatever sort of thing. But I I don't know. I mean, the, the most I got from it sort of thing was the um uh, some something about maybe that there's something about because there's a note i got in it sort of thing which is that uh, new yorkers never look up yes, um, yeah. unless unless they're getting sprayed with blood sort of thing so there's maybe this um there's maybe a comment there's maybe a comment to say that all these things go on above their heads in these skyscrapers that mm. they're completely oblivious to yeah yeah there's a lot of stuff going on behind closed doors mm. <laughs> yeah and, and, and maybe you know that the the, the the bloodsuckers who live in the you know the the, the monsters that live in the, the top of these high-rise things living off the people below yeah um th there's maybe something i don't, I don't know yeah if you want, I mean, if you want to yeah. i like that i like that i mean obviously I put, mentioned about the social order thing earlier but i mean the other thing for me is the, the juxtaposition of the ancient and the modern you know, mm. uh, an ancient belief versus sort of the modern day. Um, that's kind of married in this semi-documentary approach and, and the monster movie uh, methods, if you like. So, so the retro Harryhausen-esque stop motion, which I like to see. I like I like stop motion. So, 
Um, but it, it reminds me a bit of Cold Chap the Night Stalker and, and how many of those episodes of Cold Chap sort of took ancient beliefs and, and put them in, in present day America. Uh, also, it, it taps into uh, you know uh, von Daniken's Chariots of the Guards, and there's something in the zeitgeist in the 70s and the 80s about sort of ancient beliefs in, in the present. I think. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Carradine's got that great line: "This thing has been prayed back into existence." And mm. there's, there's really this sort of issue of faith as well. The academic says to him, the lecturer says to him, "What else is God but an invisible force that we fear?" Um, and at some point, uh, one of the cops says. Uh, you know, all you have to do now is take the bread and the wine. That's what I call civilised. But there's an irony in the sense that, you know, that, that Catholic Eucharist that, that is, is referencing is kind of made more direct and more brutal, if you like. You know, the symbolism of the bread and the wine, the body of Christ and the blood mm. of Christ is made more explicit in, in the flesh eating of, of Q, the serpent, and, of course, the, the sacrifices that are committed by Q's um, true believers, you might mm. say. Um, so you know, there's something there about the the hierarchy, the social hierarchy. There's something there about faith. There's also some stuff in there about uh, attitudes towards authority. There's a, quite a strong sort of anti-authority streak, I think. You know, like uh, that line, "I want a Nixon-like pad," and, and um, you know, the Carradine also says Shepard tells his wife, you know, when they're in bed together, he says. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be the first time in history a monster was mistaken for God. And it's not hard to sort of think that, that what Cohen's talking about is not, you know, it's God heads. It's not, you know, uh, yeah. gods of faith. It, it, it's, uh, you know, it's maybe Nixon. It could be Reagan. You know, it's these kind of figures uh, that, that, as you say, are, are doing the furthest things behind closed doors, uh, you know, the, the, at the top of the food chain in buildings that symbolise wealth and power. And uh, like the Chrysler building and, and, and you know the Bankers Bankers Trust building, and um, and and that's kind of what 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 the monsters a loose symbol of, if you like. But then on the other, on the other hand as well, you know, uh, Shepard says at the end of the picture, you know, it's just your good old fashioned monster, mm-hmm. which is kind of uh, that's true as well. There is yeah. one thing that I wanted to mention before we sort of sign off, I think, which is that one of my favourite scenes is that one with a cop that's dressed up as a mime. <laughs> And uh, mm-hmm. and there's this great build-up to it, isn't it? He's in the car and so on. And then uh, at one point you see somebody stolen, you're taken off, carried off, <laughs> brutalised by the creature, and he just stares on with his open mouth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I was utterly silent, just with his mind makeup on, which I think, <laughs> I think it's a great scene. I think that, yeah. that sums up uh, Cowan's. I, I just wanted to, one of the thing I did note sort of thing was, um, I, I didn't quite understand, I mean, the, 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 the plotting, I think, when the when, how many skyscrapers are in Manhattan? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's that many. Not in the grand scheme of things. And so what, what I couldn't understand was they knew that this creature was at the top of one of them. All they've got to do is send a couple of cops at the top of each one. It's only going to take them an afternoon to find it. Um, I, don't know why, I, don't, I don't know why they're paying this guy a million dollars and you're giving him all the rights to the photograph sort of thing. Because later on, when they find, when Quinn is about to get killed by the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the shaman, the Aztec guy, whatever it, whatever it is. Um, uh, Carradine says, oh, we've, we've been searching all the low-rent motels all afternoon to find you. <laughs> it's like, I reckon there's more low-rent motels in than Manhattan skyscrapers. than skyscrapers, yeah. but they can manage to find him in some random room in one of them in an afternoon, but can't find a giant monster 
at the top of a skyscraper <laughs> in, the, in the same amount of time. Well, I can tell you, according to National Geographic, before 2004, which I know is quite loose, there were 28 skyscrapers in there. There you go. So they need about go. they need about 50 50 cops. 56 yeah. tops, send two of them to the top. You know, they've, all, they've all got lifts. The other thing as well, sort of thing, the other thing I noticed as well is when all those cops go up in that lift, I was worried for them. There were a lot of cops in that lift, and I thought it was overloaded. Yeah, it's health and safety regulations. Yeah, there was a lot going in there. I was like, there's, there's, there's more no than one I mean, the, I mean, talking about health and safety, there's, there's the other story, which is that when they were firing the, the, those machine guns on the top of the building, and they're rarely leaning out of that building and firing machine, the, the empty shell casings were sort yeah. of fall. I mean, they could have, they could have killed somebody. Do you know what I mean? And, and I yeah. also like the uh, the shortest um, introduction to death that this film does as well. When that that young cop goes up and Caroline's like, "You'll be all right." <laughs> <laughs> It's brilliant. It's like about 10 seconds between Caroline going, you're going to be fine, kid. Just shoot. And shoot. then about 10 seconds later, the monster goes, ah, dead. It's like, it's like oh, you know, were we supposed to, were you trying to build us up to like, like this he was, character? He was only two weeks to retirement as well. <laughs> Peter, uh, but, did you have anything that you wanted to particularly say in, in summing up? Um, no, no. I think, uh, I think that's, I think that's it. <laughs> I like to think, I like to think that uh, in amongst all the yes I, I like to take the uh, the lowbrow view sometimes. <laughs> which That's I think, fine. I think is necessary for films of of this ilk sort of thing yeah. because there are there are moments sort of thing where it's like yeah okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of my life. Yeah. I, so, so there I mean, you, go. you did have the um, the, the comical um, sort of bit with the, the first ritualistic sort of cutting out of the heart. Um, the the guy looks like a sort of a bad character from a theme park with that giant Mardi Gras sort of um, headdress. <laughs> yeah. And it did make me laugh as well, sort of thing, when the um, the coroner said, "Oh, this has been cut out with surgical precision," and then you see the body, <laughs> and the body's like been ripped in two. <laughs> if that's what it's carried past for surgery back in 1982, I was never, I never got ill. Yeah, it's like anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like that's not surgical precision that's really not um and also i felt for the bellhop um yes. because the bellhop stood there looking at his flay guy flay body and then the the cop turns around and says oh you you want to get out you don't want to see this he's already seen it you know he's seen far too much and been stood there for a good couple of minutes already taking this in before you told him to get out oh, i don't know um, I think with that, I think we'll we'll leave it we'll leave it there. We shall say farewell. Um, and uh, I think you actually going... won't be on the next one after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I was just going to say I'm going to get a bite to eat. I think. Yeah. Same, yeah. <laughs> a cantaloupe or something. A cantaloupe, yeah. Cantaloupe, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to carve it with surgical precision this for ten centuries it has waited to be awakened, to be worshipped again like a god, to fill the skies, to cast its shadow over the earth, to release its fury. Today in New York City, the winged serpent rises. 
the Winged Serpent rules. The Winged Serpent. David Carradine. This thing has been prayed back into existence. Michael Moriarty. It was big and there was something in it that looked like an egg. But it couldn't have been an egg. I mean, there aren't any eggs. There's no egg that big. Richard Roundtree. What I want to know is, how the hell is this tie in with the murders and the mutilations? Candy Clark. What are you going to do if someone dies tomorrow, or the next day, or the next day? Well, I'm not going to think about it. You know, it won't be my fault. It'll be theirs if they don't give me what I want. Money. One million dollars in cash tax free. They are searching. Looking good. Discovering. <laughs> Believing. And preparing for the battle of a thousand years. Load tracer ammunition. Want to see the trajectory? Get those guys into the basket. Okay, everybody hold their positions. Everybody stay right where you are, all right? Don't move. the fantastic flying forces of a lost age. You like saying a prayer? Man against the winged serpent. Today in New York City, the winged serpent rules. The legend has come alive.